Uh, the message tonight, uh, the idea for the message tonight, I mean, this is purely a biblical message. And nobody has a corner on the Bible. This message, this message has been preached by thousands and thousands and thousands of preachers, I'm sure. Uh, the area of the life of Abraham um, and what he did with uh, his son. I, I don't think we can wear it out because I think it was so, so absolutely huge, as one guy up north of us would say, in the life and in our lives and our relationship to God. The book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. If I could talk you into reading a book other than the Bible, that would be one of the books I would talk into reading. Um, it will impact you. It will move you. And if you get the messages in it, it will change you for good. Uh, that is one of them that I highly, highly recommend. A lot of times I cannot seem to get to people uh, through you know, the preaching, and it doesn't seem like they're responding right, and, and, and a lot of times uh, I am just not able to, to get the message of the Bible to them. It don't seem like they were, the, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's deflecting off of them in the various methods that you try to get it to them. And the best, and sometimes reading a book has, has broken through the darkness, if I want to call it that. It, it's broken through the darkness. I remember I had a guy here... Uh, Festa, Joe Festa. I've told the story. Joe came in my office. He said, I'm Catholic. I'm not interested in being a Baptist. I don't want to be a Baptist. I like to dance. I like to sing. I said, well, we Baptists like to sing. But we're not very good dancers. But, um, and he says, I, I just, I drink alcohol. I know you folks don't. And he says, so I would never be able to be part of your group. But he said, I'm having some trouble in my marriage, and I felt like you'd be a good counselor for me. And I don't know why. And it was all God, you know. So he came by, and I, he wanted to talk about his wife. And I always love marriage counseling. You know, when you, when you deal with a, when one mate, they talk bad about the other mate. And then when you bring the other mate in, they talk bad about that mate. Then when you bring them in, you've got to have a referee. And you understand what's going on there, right? If just somebody would accept the blame, it'd probably be a fine marriage. Uh, but, but somebody's got to be a good Christian. Somebody's got to be a Christian. And so... Uh, he was there, and, and we didn't do too well on the counseling, really, to be honest with you. So, but, but the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear, and he said, give him a book. Now, here's a man that won't even listen to me giving the gospel. He absolutely shut me down. I said, are you a reader? He said, oh, I'm an avid reader. Now, people are proud of that. A lot of times, avid readers are proud of their avid readers. So I thought, ooh, I got a point here. I got a, I got a point of pride I can use for him. I said, so you're a reader. Oh, he said, I'm a big reader. I'm a big reader. Oh, I said, beautiful, beautiful. I said, I have a book, and instead of charging you $110 for this hour we've spent, because he didn't know I didn't charge. And so I said, you know, $110 the average hourly rate. I says, if you read this book, I'll cons we'll consider it a wash. And he said, oh, that would be so kind of you to do that. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, it is kind of me. And I said, I'll even give you the book. What? You give me the book? I said, I'll give you the book. So I gave him the Calvary Road. In about two weeks, he came back broken. First chapter of Calvary Road is on brokenness. He came back broken. He said, Preacher, that 10th chapter got me. Man, that, tenth, that last chapter, that just nailed a hole right in my... He said, I need to get saved. So he got born again, saved, made a profession of faith here. We baptized him. And he's still living for Jesus. 
on, he took a book and would read it. I couldn't get through to him. And maybe you got people like that. Maybe you got people that are holding you off. You know, they just hold you off. They just won't let you get inside. They won't let you get into the inside. It's too painful, too scary for them. But that book is unobtrusive. And it's not personal. And so they can read that. And like, well, you know, it's not written just for me. And so they'll read it and let the message of the book get inside. And uh, I'm doing that. I can't name the people I'm doing that with right now, but I got somebody else that I'm working on right now that there's a book I gave him, and it was A.W. Tozier, Pursuit of God, and I believe it's going to change him for the good. I want to talk to you a little bit about that, uh, that the idea of the, at least of the first chapter, which is not new to him and not new to me for sure. The title of the chapter is, it's, it's God's nature to possess. But I'm going to put it this way. It's our nature also to possess. Adam and Eve in the garden had everything they ever wanted to enjoy. They had, do you agree with that? In the garden, they had everything they needed. It was all made by God, perfectly fit for them. They're fit for it, and it's fit for them. God gave Adam authority over everything around him, everything he saw. He had authority over it. He was instructed by God simply to take care of what God had given him. And everything around him was good. I'm not going to necessarily go all of this. And uh, Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let's make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and the cattle, over the earth, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, and multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which the fruit of the yielding, a seed for you for me. So we believe they were vegetarian uh, based on that. They had, there was no death. There was no death. So when you eat a plant, you're not killing it. I just thought I'd throw it out there. Um, the plant don't, you know, the, the, the lettuce head doesn't cry for mercy before you cut it up. But... Uh, Every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air and every, everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, it has given every green herb for meat. And so it was so. But A.W. Tozier says this. He says, in, the, in Genesis' account of creation, um, these are called simply things. Things. They were made for man's uses. Uh, but they were meant always to be external to the man. The things that God created for Adam and Eve were meant to be external to him. I want to emphasize that. And sub, sub, subservient to him, in the deep heart of the man was a shrine. And we still have that. Where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God, and without was a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. That was before the fall. Then the fall. Once the fall happened, all these things change, as you know, so dramatically. What once was meant for the good of man now became his nemesis. The things around him that were gifts to him by God because God was on the throne where he should have been uh, now became a nemesis to the man because these things usurped God. The possessions and the things around the man became his new God. His new number one. Uh, how many, anybody here can quote the first of the Ten Commandments? Chris, what is it? 
He nailed it. Ah, that's my boy. That's my boy over there. I asked my wife that this afternoon, and she couldn't do it. She says, I cannot remember that. I said, oh, Kathy, you're a pastor's wife. You know, you've been in the Bible your whole life, so don't feel bad if you didn't. If you sat there and couldn't remember, don't feel bad, because Kathy couldn't either. And I probably can't in, in probably 10 minutes. But anyways, no, so I have no other guys before you. In other words, the first of the Ten Commandments is about position. Who is number one in your life? First of the Ten Commandments. It's supposed to be God, right? If God is not number one, what's happened? Idolatry has taken place. What is idolatry? Idolatry is anything that substitutes for God. Anything that takes God's number one rightful place is an idol. So when man fell, the things around him that were meant to serve him and to be a blessing to him now turned into being new gods, being something he served and became, instead of uh, them being subservient to him, he became subservient to them. The throne of man became occupied with a greedy demon called possession. And another name Jesus uses is covetousness. One of the most talked against sins in the Bible is covetousness. You believe that? It's true. Covetousness. It's almost on all the lists. Coveting. Wanting something, uh, in a, in a, but not wanting it in its rightful place or position. So the God of materialism was born at the fall and was not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, this God uh, of, of possession, he aims to win the battle. He aims to stay where he's at. He's tenacious. He's determined to keep his throne where God once was. The Christian in principle has been reborn when we get saved. Back into the state that Adam once was, almost, almost. God has again come into the new birth person, the born-again person. He's come in to dwell with him. But there's a significant difference than, than before the fall. This new nature, this new birth, we have a dualistic nature. We have the old man and now and the new man dwelling in, this, in one tabernacle. And so there is a constant uh, war going on between the flesh and the spirit. Though when dwelt by God again, we have now a choice Minute by minute, day by day, who sits on the throne of our lives? In the, in the garden, the first man, he didn't have a choice. God was on the throne. He knew nothing else but God being on the throne and being his master and being his Lord. He knew, he knew nothing of greed. He knew nothing of covetousness. He knew nothing of materialism. He knew nothing of the power of possessions. It was only after the fall that he horribly realized something had changed. There's a difference. We know the horrors of not having God on the throne in our lives. What was that? That was before we were saved. The horror of the emptiness. Because there's a place that God fits and only he fits and when he's not there nothing satisfies. Mick Jagger said it in the 60s. I can't get no satisfaction, and that boy's had fame. He's had, he's had power. He's had money. 
And even today in his 70s, he still is not satisfied because you never can satisfy the place that is meant for God and nothing else. Don't be deceived by that, please. Because nothing else will make you happy and give you peace that passes all understanding but when God gets on the throne where he should be. So we know the horror of, having, of, of not having God on the throne of our lives. We know the power of the things of this world, 1 John 2, 15, 17. But now what? Over the battle. We have the battle. Jesus calls us to put him on the throne of our heart after we're saved. And herein is the test. Now, you've heard many of these verses before. Matthew chapter 8, verse 34. Uh, he, said, he said, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What is that saying? Die to yourself and put me on the throne. Yeah. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. What's that mean? The word being crucified, you can, I can interpret this way. I am dead with Christ. Nevertheless I live. I'm dead with Christ. So what Jesus Christ is calling us in in this new birth life is to die to this world. To die to everything else but him. Now, that does not mean that you are going to be a monk up in some monastery that never can possess but more than one set of clothes, though that's exactly where the flesh goes. Remember I told you, this old enemy is going to kick and scream and yell and claw when you start wanting to limit his influence and his power. He's going to threaten you like the fake news. Everybody's going to die. They're going to go crazy, going to overreact. That's what they're going to do. That's what the old, that's what the old, uh, old man's going to do, the old man that is used to having his way. And Jesus said, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. Well, what's that mean? What is your life? That's the question he posed. What is your life? It's but a vapor. It appears for a little while and it's gone. What is your life? Jesus said, a man's life is not in the things in which he possesseth. You're not, you are not the kind of car you drive. You're not the clothes you wear. You're not the house you live in. You're not the prestige that you may have attained. You're not the talent that you have. No. Those things don't make you. What makes you is putting God in his place in your life. So the war of self versus God is in full swing. Those who really want to know God and enjoy him and all that he has to offer must all go the same path. We all got to go the same way. We must decide to die to the greedy monster of self, to die to possessing, to die to materialism as the reason for living. Now, I'm gonna, I know where your mind is already on this. You're saying that means I don't get to own anything. I never get to have anything. I, huh, huh. That's that old monster in there. God's never saying that. Did Adam and Eve before the fall, what did they have? They had everything. Why? They could be trusted with it. My wife has, I'm going to say this. I may be wrong, of course. But my wife has as much freedom or more freedom than any woman in this building. How did she attain such freedom? I can trust her. 
I can trust her. She did my, she did my finances, which wasn't speaking of much, but my wife did my finances for my whole life. And I rarely ever checked her out. Once in a while, I'd go back there just to see that I wasn't being duped, but I wasn't. Hey, even God, don't expect till you inspect. You know what I mean? So, but in every time I ever checked her out, and every time I ever inspected, it was she was was who she said he, she said she was, and doing what she said she was doing, and she's been absolutely forthright and trustworthy to me. Now I can't tell you what that means to me, but I can tell you that means I can give her everything. That means I can turn over all the freedom she wants. I can give her responsibilities. I can give her she has, and and that's what God is in some direction to us. Why doesn't God give you? Maybe because he can't trust you with it. If God gave it to you, you'd cause it to be your idol, and it would destroy you, and God loves you. And he doesn't want to hurt you. What does a parent do that damages a child more than singly? Anything else that they can do to the child is they give them everything they want without work, without blood, without sweat, without tears. My dad understood that lesson, man. You are not going to have a free ride at his place. He told me when I get 18 years old, he said, you're going to pay rent and you're going to pay for your food. 18-year-old kid. I, I wonder why people don't do that today. Why don't they do that today? I don't know of a parent that does that. But my dad loved me. My dad did not love me less than you love your kids. But he understood something real, real good from the, from the Great Depression, evidently. And so I thought, okay, well, that means, you know, I'm going to have to do some four-letter word, work. I'm going to have to really get serious about working, and I'm going to have to get out there and, 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 and labor and, and pull my own weight and be a giver rather than a taker. Well, that's a great position to be in, by the way. I'd always rather be a giver than a taker. Didn't Jesus say it's better to give than receive? Amen. Now, I'm, not, I'm not getting mean on you parents. And I personally am not critical of you, and I'm not judging you. I'm just throwing stuff up on the table. If the Holy Spirit applies it, you take it. In essence, God wants us to lose our life here as far as this possession monster is concerned. And then when you do that, and you de- what, is, what is dedicating your life? When people come down and they dedicate their life under an evangelist comes by, or I preach a sermon on dedication, and people come down and say, would you give your life to Jesus? And they come down, and they say, I, I put all on, the, all on the altar of sacrifice I lay. That's a song. All on the altar. And they put, what do they got? They don't have it. They got potential to lay down. Well, finances to lay down, some finances maybe lay down, maybe a few possessions. But God, whatever you want me to do with what you have given me, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to do whatever you, whatever I know is you. If I know what's you doing it, I'm going to do it. What do they do? They're dying to their self. When they do that, before they do that, as they sit back there and think about it, the old, the old monster inside cries, moans, weeps, begs. Reasons, screams, scratches, and howls. Because he'll not die easily, and he will not give up easily. It will feel as if you're literally going to physically die when you come to this point of decision in your life. It will be painful. It will be agonizing. And I may say it will be fearful. Now, what part of you is going through all that as the old man? 
the spirit of them, your spirit's happy. Your spirit's saying, give everything. Lay it all down. Give everything to God because this is the only way to live. It's the only way to ever have anything is to give it all. But the, the flesh part of you is going, oh, man, this is crazy talk. Jesus said, Matthew 19, 29, it's out in our hallway there, but everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. Who are these people that do that? Are you one of them? These folks forsook everything this world values, but can, <laughs> I like this, this is statement. They forsake everything that the world values that we cannot keep. I, I think it was one of the boys that got killed down there. Uh, that got killed down there with the Aka Indians. He wrote in his Bible, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's possible I'm wrong on that. It, it could have been in his Bible, but I think maybe William, maybe Adoniram Judson or William Carey, one of those guys first had that. But anyways, that statement is, is powerful. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is what it means to know God, to obey God, and to serve God the way he wants us to, the way it was in the Garden of Eden. It is to put him on the throne of your life, to make him number one. It's where he belongs, but you know what? He'll not force himself on you, and he will not force himself on that throne. That has to be a door you open. That has to be a door you take your hand and you open it. He'll not force himself on you. Now, he'll make you think about it. He'll make you contemplate about it. He'll let you read about it as you read through the Bible, those verses I talked in so many more, plus sermons like this. So let's go to Abraham and try to illustrate this and maybe put a nail on this. The meaning of Abraham's greatest uh, test, this, you know Abraham's greatest test. I don't think you got a, uh, it was the sacrifice of his son Isaac. It was his greatest test. Uh, the life of, of Abraham is Genesis chapter 12 through 25. And um, maybe Abraham's one of the, is at least the first or second greatest figure in the Old Testament beside Moses. Uh, why was he great? Why was Abraham great? I think it could have been different, a much different. Nobody may have even known the name of Abraham had he reacted differently. Abraham was promised by God that he would inherit the land, a seed that was without number, and that God would rule over everything. And think about how good the land, seed, and theocracy. He was going to have the land. He was going to have a seed. Look to the stars, and if you can number them, that'll be your seed. So, I mean, woo! Yeah, I'm actually Tom Gillespie happy. We're going, to, we're going to have as many kids. We're going to have, ooh, we're going to have seed past what you can number. And I am going to be your God and you'll be my people and I will help you and I'll rule with, over you. And, and that's a good place to be, a theocracy. That, not democracy, but a theocracy. It's where God rules over there. And so you're going to have all of this. But what happened? You know the story. Abraham got old. His wife got old. Uh, she went through menopause. Um, you know, she was not able to bear. No more uh, ovulation, no more possibility of bearing. 
Uh, she was uh, 89. He was 99. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was, of course, you know about Hagar, and I'm not going into that about Hagar, Hagar and Ishmael and all that. That was, that was a sidestep for him, to be honest with you, not trusting God in fullness on that and going along with his wife. But then an angel comes by and says, okay, the time has come. Sarah, guess what? You're going to have a kid. She laughed. She thought it was who? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. You know, no. I oh, said, no. He said, you're going to have a child. I'm not going to go into any details, but she had to change a little bit to have that child. Things had to change. Things began to change in her. She didn't know what was going on. She began to look at Abraham differently. One night she looked at the tent. She went to Abraham and goes, and he goes back in the tent, boom. He couldn't believe it himself. Wow. Wow. They didn't have pregnancy tests back then. I'm not sure how long you had to go before you knew you were pregnant. But I think it maybe it was uh, maybe six months. You know, you start getting that little pooch. That's six months. I don't know how long it was. But she says, Abraham, guess what? I'm pregnant. Oh, they had a big old time, and, uh, and this woman's going to be 90 years old and have a child. woo They had waited all those years for that child. It was big, lots of anticipation. This child's going to inherit the land, the seed, and the theocracy, and God's going God's to go through him and going to go through his children and his children's children and going to bless. The Bible says your family's going to bless the entire world, and he has. Jesus told the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. It was through Abraham and Sarah that the Christ was going to come. And then salvation was going to come, not just for us, but for them too. Salvation was going to be purchased for Adam and Eve and everybody that died, that, that, that had faith in God, looking forward to that time when the Lamb would come. And all of us now, 2,000 years down the road, to look back to the Lamb coming. To all of those that are ever going to be saved, this whole thing hinged on the Messiah who was to come, the suffering servant. So, that's amazing. One child. Well, something happened as that child grew. When Isaac grew, he became the very apple of Abraham's eye. He became the apple of his eye. And mama too, but specifically the leader in Abraham. And something happened. And I think it can happen in all of us that happened in Abraham. What was meant for good can be perverted and become harmful. What was given to us to add to our lives, we now take it as a possession and replace God with the very thing that he gave us. Abraham, this is a quote by Ada Tozier, says, Abraham became the eager love slave of his son. That's a powerful statement. He became, the, he became the eager love slave of his son. Abraham was being led to replace God with Isaac on the throne of his heart. But God wasn't going to live with that. 
and he stopped the process. How did he stop the process? Uh, Genesis 22, 2 says, he says, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Notice he emphasized this, this cherished child of yours, this child of promise of yours, that you waited on so long it was miraculous in birth, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon the mountains, which I will tell thee of. We see the struggle. I don't think anybody talks about the night before they went up to the Mount Moriah, the night before. They got there the night before. It was a long night, a long night for Abraham. And I think it was a long night for Jesus. At Gethsemane. Oh, the tears of anguish that must have been shed that night. How could he kill the son of his promise? How could he kill the joy of his old age? One way that he reconciled it in his own mind was told us in Hebrews, which we would not have known had it not been for New Testament. In Hebrews 11 19, it says, accounting that God was able to raise him up, that is, Isaac, even from the dead, from whence also he received him a figure. That night, Abraham won. That night, in his mind, he took the knife and slew the juggler vein of his son and watched him bleed out. That night, he decided that God was number one. That nothing or nobody was going to take the place of God as what was most important in his life. You know why Abraham's called the father of all them that believe? Just like Jesus' prayer in the garden, not my will done, but thine led to the victory over sin, death, the devil. So Abraham's decision that night led him to become the father of all that believe. Here's a surprise. Here's a surprise. Don't touch your face. Here's a surprise. God loves surprises, by the way. You're not going to figure God out and how He's going to move and how He's going to come into your life and how He's going to rescue you or move. You're not going to figure it out. What happens to me is not necessarily what's going to happen to you. You're individual as a snowflake, and God himself is going to work with you that way. I don't think, I know this to be true, God never intended Abraham to slay his son. He never did. He wanted to establish his place in Abraham's heart 
He only wanted to keep straight who really was number one. And who, who's, whose sake was that for? Was it for God's sake? God knows he's number one. You're not doing that to convince God, hey, you're number one. He already knows who he is. He's trying to get you and me to come up to where he's at. The truth. The truth that he is number one. The God of all that is. The creator of thrones and dominions and principalities and powers. And brother, what a day it is when we come to that realization. God's number one. And so, he did it for Abraham's benefit. He did it for Isaac's benefit. He did it for everybody that followed them, the 12 tribes' benefit. He did it for our benefit. God will not put up with idolatry. Now, a lot of times we talk about idolatry, we don't verbalize it in this way. But anything that takes number one position in your life is an idol. And it's wicked. And God must get rid of it. And he'll do whatever he has to do to get rid of it. Because you cannot serve God and mammon. I've known a few rich, materially rich Christians. I've known a few materially very rich Christians. I One guy told me he, if he, he could never spend all of his money. If he started spending money any way he wanted to spend it, he could never spend it all. That's a lot of money. I'd be out of money in about two weeks. And that's if my wife didn't spend anything. But let me tell you, of the born-again Christians that I've known that God has entrusted them with that kind of wealth, it never was in question who was on the throne in their life. It never was in question. I got to know them pretty well. One of them was chairman of the board of deacons here for years. And it never was a question of who was number one. And it made sense to me that because they made God number one, God then could entrust them with things. Just like in the Garden of Eden. Adam had everything because he could trust him that he was going to be number one. <coughs> as soon as Adam fell, he could be trusted with nothing. And it was he was driven out of the garden. You've got to choose and I've got to choose who's going to be number one in our life. Who sits on your throne? Is Jesus number one? Is he your king? Or are you lying to yourself, conning yourself, deceiving yourself? But let me say this, there can only be one king. There can only be one captain of your life. Well, what, ha what happened to Abraham? Okay. So Abraham, I just love to read that story. I almost never read it without crying. He lifted the knife, and the angel said, stop!
the place that makes me always tear up, that God shall provide Himself a lamb. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me. I appeal to you tonight. To be possessed by nothing but God. The devil's a liar. I've seen people live their lives for the things, the position, the fame, and lose everything. And never have peace, even in the meantime, never really have peace. They have thrills, but they never have peace. They have excitement, but they don't have contentment. And even the things they have are not satisfying to them, and they disdain them. I've worked in enough people's homes to tell you some of the most miserable homes in Lee County are some of the richest homes in Lee County. I'm talking about the home. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the people in the home. Some of the most miserable, fighting each other, hating each other, possessing. A while back, we had, had two kids kill their parents to get the inheritance. They became famous. I forgot the name of them. That's an extreme case of materialism. Killing your mom and dad so you can have their stuff, which you couldn't have their stuff because now they're in jail, rotten in jail. And they didn't get anything. That's the devil, right? That's the way he does stuff. He convinces you to do something you never really can have it. He knows he can. You're not, you're not, you're not going to. But he gets you to believe it just long enough to, <clears throat> to waste your life. You only have so many days. Another day. I was in, and I'm in the hospital there, and you know the doctor comes in, emergency room. Doctor comes in and says, uh, you know, this could happen, that could happen, this could happen, that could happen. And he left, and I thought, well, what if this was my last day? I said, I'm good with it. I'm good with it. I just hope my wife's new husband. I'm good with it. In my mind, I thought about never going back to my house, never driving my truck again, never touching anything. That gets your mind right. How clearly it became again to me that it was never mine. It was on loan. 
just on loan. Use it for God. Use it for you don't have to give away everything you ever own. Unless God tells you to. Now, if God tells you to do it, do it, man. Do it. But it's rare that God comes around somebody and tests them in the place where it says, give everything you have away. It's rare. I believe God can be trusted. Whatever he asks me to do, he can be trusted. See, that's where this all goes. Abraham trusted God. He trusted him. Take your son, your only son, and take him to the Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Such an implicit trust that we didn't we don't see in their story any hesitation. He raises his hand. I always wondered, God wants you to go to that last minute, you know, hang hang your ten toes off the surfboard. But he did. May God help us to get this. Father, thank you tonight for these folks and their thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the Word of God. It's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. May tonight it do its work. Work. May there, God keep people in this room from losing everything. Please keep them from losing everything that matters. Everything that really is eternal for a bunch of little plastic beads that the world offers. And Father... There's businessmen in here who have been called into business, but really that's not what they've been called into. They've been called to be a child of God in business. We have a plumber in this church. He's not really a plumber. He's, he's a child of God called to do plumbing. We have mechanics in this church. They're really not mechanics. They're children of God called to be mechanics. We have a veterinarian in this church. That really is not a veterinarian. He's a child of God called to do God's will. It happens to be a veterinarian. We have medical doctors in this church that they're really not medical doctors. They're children of God who just happen to be called to be a medical doctor. But being a medical doctor or being a veterinarian or being a plumber or being an electrician or being a carpenter is never number one, never. It's always God. And Father, you can do such great and mighty things through people like that. You can trust them. You can bless them. You can anoint them. You can help them. Without them taking the very thing that was meant for good and turning it to something evil, something harmful. Help us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida, also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.